Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 89th episode, it's the return of Lucy Harrison. Along the way, we discuss Lucy Harrison's five-way revenge. We argue both for and against fancy chocolate shops. And we have three minutes of discussion on current Australian federal politics, but apologize by talking about cakes, biscuits, ice cream, and board games for the rest of the episode. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? So I am a composer and sound designer. I specialise in interactive sound and sound installations. And that has included, I did an interactive fort, was one of my big projects. I've also done kind of immersive theatre projects. Most recently a project about libraries and books and reading. And I also lecture in sound design and sound production. And you wrote about Batman. Yeah, for my undergraduate dissertation, I wrote about Batman. For my PhD, I managed to get, there wasn't much Batman in there, but there was Thunderbirds and Community managed to make it in. Okay, okay. So I think it's known about the show that I cannot let a statement like that go. You now need to explain (laughs) your PhD involving Thunderbirds and Community. So my PhD was on interactive sound installations and kind of roles of collaboration and audience engagement and when the audience takes a collaborative role and how much belongs to them and how much belongs to me in the compositional process. But I had a final piece, which was the interactive fort. So we made this big blanket fort and then I needed ways to get the audience involved. But the initial idea for the fort came from that episode of Community oh, yes. where Troy and Abbott build the fort that goes across the whole school and I looked at that and thought I could do that so I did and then to kind of bring people into it we were looking at 90s nostalgia and the Thunderbirds had this huge resurgence in the 90s so we got the Thunderbirds in basically so we had a green area of it and there was a die cast Thunderbird 2 which was on that which my brother had growing up he had one of those and he would never let me near it so (laughs) we put one in the fort and now I've kept it and he wasn't allowed near it, so he came to visit, and I was like, no, you're not allowed near that stuff. <laughs> that's, that's not yours. Hi, this is some long-term revenge that I'm enacting. Yeah. And you just have to deal with it. Yeah, you might have got Tracy Island, but <laughs> I'm the one with the Thunderbird now, so... Did you have stuff that he wasn't allowed to touch, or...? He wasn't that interested, I don't think. Because ah. anything of mine that he had been interested in was a hand-me-down, and then anything else was kind of both of us or his only and then I used to wait until because boys toys are better like well gender is a construct but the, the toys that are marketed boys, boys toys actually involve more yeah. things to do yeah so the Tracy Islands did, did you have one of those I didn't because I remember I was a sort of an early teenager in the in the early 90s and the entire Thunderbirds thing was baffling to me because we didn't really have it in Canada but I have since learned about the importance of Thunderbirds And there being a Ben Kingsley movie about it. Oh, yeah, that was much later. That was in the aughts. I think it was like 2005. Yes, but it did involve then a resurgence of people who did remember the Thunderbirds then explaining the Thunderbirds to me when that movie came out. Oh, yeah, I could see that would be quite annoying. (laughs) But the Tracy Island, so that's where all of International Rescue live. There's a kids TV show over in the UK called Blue Peter, which I think has come up a lot on the Matthew. Yes, I've heard many things about the badges. And what one needs to do to get a green badge versus a blue badge. Yeah, I never had a badge. And one of my friends got given one. You didn't You didn't write them a letter or anything? I did, but they never got picked up. 
Oh. My friend got given one because his auntie owned the dogs on the show. <laughs> so, so he just got one, which makes me very annoyed. But as part of that show, they... I'm sorry, I'm just picturing this conversation of, oh yeah, I know a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I know celebrity dogs, not just like any dog. It's... I know Bonnie and Lucy. <laughs> Again, dogs with excellent names. There was Bonnie, Lucy and Mabel, and then the cats were karaoke. As in karaoke? Like, yeah. Oh like, my really god. Well oh my god. <laughs> that's the problem with theme naming cats. If, they, if something happens to one of the cats, then you're just left with just, oh, that's just Oki the cat. I know. <laughs> he doesn't sing anymore. Oh, <laughs> poor Oki. So at the peak of it, they would do these crafts, and they did a paper mache Tracy Island. Okay. And you did bits every week. So they had like yogurt pots and um, I think a washing up liquid holder had to go into it, which always went into all of theirs. And my dad and my brother made this over about six weeks, put it in the garage to dry and a mm. mouse ate it. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no more Tracy Island. So my parents felt so terrible that they bought Chris, my brother, the proper one. And the proper one was made of plastic and had like trees that folded down and buttons that made noises. And it was in his bedroom and I was not allowed to go near it. So I used to wait until he went out to play. And then I'd go to play Tracy Island. Yeah. And that's where the long-term Thunderbird 2 revenge came from. It's on my desk now, that Thunderbird. Lucy Harrison's five-wave revenge. (laughs) I love it. I know. 20 years. (laughs) Very cold, that revenge. Uh, Extremely cold, but very well served. I think I was an, I was a slightly odd kid in that like I was always very careful with my toys. I was never a kid who broke toys, and the rare occasion that it happened would be a tragedy. But I remember that when certain friends of mine would come over to play, and this is when I was maybe six, I would ask my dad to put the good toys up on the high shelf because then I couldn't reach them, but then my friends couldn't reach them either. They were the safe toys they could play with, and I didn't mind if they were then horrible and broke them, which I think shows kind of a calculating level of forethought and... I'm not sure what to make of it, really, but I think it was more just don't, don't, don't break my things. What kind of friends did you have who were coming around and breaking your toys? Uh, I remember there was Aaron Blakeney. Aaron Blakeney was very rough on his things, and like we would go to his birthday party, and he would get a toy and open it, and it would be broken by the end of the party. And I remember being like just, oh just, God. just quietly horrified by that, like just like looking at it and going, what, why, why would you do that? It's your new thing. You know, why, why don't you be careful with it? Did he have a lot of stuff? Not really, but he did have a couple of siblings, and it was one of those, they had a big playroom downstairs that had a lot of toys with bits missing. And yeah, I remember like he got a transformer, and one of the arms came off immediately, and I was shocked as someone who took very good care of his transformers. Yeah, that is horrifying. So yeah, when uh, the Blakeney kids would come to my house, I would ask my dad to put my nice things up on the top shelf, and there would stuff be that would be left over that was probably too old for now that he would be fine to play with, and that were either indestructible or that I didn't care enough about that. So Lucy, since pretty much since we spoke last, I know there are a few things that are kind of constants along your Twitter feed and newsletters and stuff. I think the last time we spoke, you hadn't even seen The Man From U.N.C.L.E. yet. Oh, no, I had seen it. Rosie hadn't. Yes, that's right. I'd seen it, but I... It hadn't become the phenomenon that then runs your house for <laughs> any, number, any number of days. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of slightly embarrassed about it because I've seen it about six times and I cannot tell you the plot. Because <laughs> it's two very handsome men, one of them in a very well-cut suit, and I've no idea what happens in that film. Well, uh, let's see. There's a lady who dances in her pyjamas. Yeah, there's dancing in pyjamas. Well, Army Hammer plays chess. Yep, and then they wrestle. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> does sound like we're explaining dating and love to children well you see they play chess and then they dance around in their pajamas and then they wrestle for a bit and then they sleep (laughs) like puppies yeah yeah there's that there's henry cavill eats a very nice sandwich in a lorry and a bit of wine and some grapes yeah tradesmen get very good lunches in italy yes I mean, if you're going to be a tradesman, that's where you want to go. Yeah. What else happens? (laughs) Army Hammer takes umbrage at some young hoons in a bathroom who decide to be jerks. And so he beats the snot out of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm really seeing this film as just a series of set pieces. There's a point where Henry Cavill makes dinner for somebody in his 
just in his shirt sleeves. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I saw it in the cinema on my own. And I was like, well, this must be what it's like to be a heterosexual man. <laughs> just feel like... <laughs> just like the whole world is set up for you to view in this way. <laughs> Such shame. It's not, it shouldn't be a shame. It's like, that's glorious. There is actually a plot involving, like, you know, race cars and stuff, I think. No, wait, no, that's focus. Shit, I've crossed the streams. No, it's... It's, it's, it's nuclear... It's that's nuclear it, it's nuclear something. weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a boat and a dune buggy that has to go up a hill. <laughs> yes, and the buggy is part of the original show. Oh, is it? That stuff was in the original show. Right. Why did I cross over into Focus? I don't know why. Focus is also a very good movie. Also about kind of cons and lying and stuff. But it is not the man from Uncle. How are the suits? <laughs> the suits are good, actually. Will Smith is in a very nice suit for most of that movie. And Margot Robbie gets to be charming. That's Margot Robbie's thing, though, isn't it? Yes. She's very likable. She is. And actually, God, there was that awful Vogue piece that was basically just drooling over her for the entire time about how she's this perfect woman. But it's like, no, Margot Robbie's just nice. Let Margot Robbie be nice. Yeah. Let her do mad films about Christopher Robin with Donald Gleason and just have a nice time. And also be Tonya Harding. Yes. I still haven't seen that one, have you? Which, that's a wild story. I didn't remember any of that happening in history. And then I looked that up. That's nuts. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. Mm. Just the idea that vengeance and ice skating and just so many layers. I did remember when it was happening in real time because I was in Canada and it was a Winter Olympics story. And so therefore it was everywhere. <laughs> Canada, that's the thing. Yeah. I kind of feel like every once in a while a topic will come up and I will just be able to explain and be like, oh no, I know a lot about this topic just by being around certain things. Like when Yuri on Ice debuted, which for those who don't know, is a gay ice skating anime about feelings. And it's very nice. It debuted and I, and I was just watching it with Kimiko and then just talking about figure skating and the technical aspects of figure skating. And she's just like, how do you know this? And I'm like, I was in a house with Chantal Brown when Elvis Stoiko was a thing. So it's just like, yeah, you just experienced this on the regular. So figure skating is one that crosses over here because we've got Torval and Dean. Yeah, yeah. Which makes us super into figure skating. Do you guys have, there's a celebrity show where they get celebrities to figure skate? I remember seeing that, but it, but I don't, I don't think it lasted very long over here. So it's been going for season, like years and years and years. And it's a huge mistake because every year at least one of them breaks a leg. Oh my God. I was going to say, it's, yeah, and then, please tell me it's not called something like Strictly Come Skating. It's called Dancing on Ice. Of course it is. Yeah. Because they looked at it and they said, you know what? It's Dancing on Ice. Why don't we just call it Dancing on Ice? Look, names are hard. <laughs> I still think that the fact that, you know, Dancing with the Stars is called Dancing with the Stars and is called something incredibly different and weird in the UK. Oh, that's because it's a composite of two things. So in the 70s, there was a show called Come Dancing, which was members of the public ballroom dancing. And then we really love Strictly Ballroom over here. So Strictly Come Dancing. It makes no, it makes no sense. It makes a lot of sense. Like, <laughs> for us, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, yeah, stands to reason. Yeah, big fans of Baz Luhrmann. We had our own show. Let's just combine it. And yet you had this ice dancing show and the cutting edge was right there. And then it's like, no, no, it's dancing on ice. <laughs> yeah, but that's ITV. Like, they're much more literal. Yeah, and then we have another show called The Jump, which is celebrities ski jumping. Oh, my... No. No. Yeah. No. And somebody... Like, people have broken their backs on it. People and Eddie the Eagle is one of the judges. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is like some running man shit. Like, please, don't send celebrities on, like, laminated planks and fling them into the air to see if they die when they land. Oh, my God. Yeah. How long has that show been running? Five or six years, I think. So, at this point, they're down to, like, second-tier Geordie Shore contestants because they've killed everyone else. No, TV's Dean Kane has been in it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Superman himself has done the jump. Dean Kane, no. Well, he's oh. Superman. Like, he can, he can do that. Oh, my God. He's quite good on Supergirl, actually. I, I can't I can't tease him too much. He's, yeah, I quite enjoy when he turns up on Supergirl. My favourite thing in that is method actor David Howard being John Jones. Yes, I'm John Jones. He's got a real tin ear for that accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's the R's when he does Martian Manhunter. <laughs> 
See, I hadn't noticed, but now I can't not notice it. Yeah, I spent a lot of time doing <laughs> David, David Howard doing American accents around the house. <laughs> this is like when I was talking to Liz Ferla, who is Scottish, and I pointed out that David Tennant had real trouble when they had him say a Jadoon platoon on the moon and not sound incredibly Scottish. Oh, yeah. Oh, I haven't watched that one for a long time. That was his first episode. Yeah, that's why they named the alien to the Jadoon, because it's the hardest thing for someone to, someone who's Scottish doing another accent to say without sounding natural. And then they're like, how far can we push this? Oh, it's a platoon of Jadoon. Oh, where are they? Of course they're on the moon. I think that's hard for anyone, like, accent-wise to do and cover up their accent. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, you could have just let him have his accent, you know. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> he has to sound, here we have to give him an estuary accent. Of course we do. And it's like, no, you don't. You could just let him be himself. He's charming. Listen to him. He's Scrooge yeah, McDuck now. Christopher Eccleston was allowed to keep his accent and was better for it. Because lots of places have a north. Yeah, but they did the same to Capaldi as well. Capaldi mm. was made to lose his accent. Mm. He also lost the ability to swear, which I think was his crowning glory. Yeah. There's a really good BuzzFeed article, which is Malcolm Tucker phrases as inspirational posters. <laughs> really good to send to people on like a bad day <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> although it, it's the strangest thing i remember like having this conversation with a friend of mine on twitter about aspirational coats and outerwear and this is a long story so i apologize i'll, call, I'll cut it short because it's really no, not no. terribly interesting but i was like i was trying to like really get into the definitions between like what's a duffel coat versus what's an overcoat versus what's a pea coat versus all all these things. So I was having a conversation at work and it was a very slow afternoon. So I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole and like, mm. you know, why it was called a trench coat and all these things. And then went into the bottom part, you know, where you expand the bottom part of Wikipedia and it just has all the other articles in the same category. Oh yeah. And then I clicked on something called that. There was just listed as crumby coat. And I went, Oh, interesting. I'll look up that. And crumby coats are just, like the platonic ideal of just like beautiful wool overcoats and they are all exquisitely tailored and they are all incredibly expensive and looking through them I found one and I'm like this is it because it was a black overcoat and it was sort of a three-quarter length which works well on me because I'm short and have short legs it's mm-hmm. sort of a black wool coat and it sits like a suit coat and the liner is this beautiful red satin liner or silk liner because it's incredibly expensive and it's vented in a way that it will kind of billow out behind you without being too showy. And I'm just like, this is a beautiful coat. This is like my platonic ideal of a coat. It's also something like 8,000 pounds. So I am never, ever going to buy this coat. So I had this whole conversation. And then like a month later, Peter Capaldi is announced as the new doctor. And they post a picture of him in his new outfit. And I dropped my phone because I went, that's a fucking crombie coat. And that's my coat that I picked. No. It's the exact coat. It's almost like they took the picture they had on their website and stuck a Peter Capaldi in the middle of it, <laughs> complete with the coat like flaring out to the side to show off the red lining. It's like exactly what was on the website. And I felt so betrayed, but also incredibly fashion forward and appreciated, even though no one had heard me say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because uh, he's he's literally light years ahead. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there, Lucy Harrison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, I'm going to find... A link to the Crombie Coats website, and I'm going to send it to you, and you can tell me how amazing these coats are. Oh, see, now they have recentered. They've changed their website to put the coat that I was talking about in the middle. The Capaldi coat. So that when you, it's the, here you go, I've just sent you a link. I will wait for the reaction. Oh, yeah. Is that not? This is like Savile Row stuff. Isn't it? And they've taken things like, oh, by the way, this is the uh, British officer's greatcoat from World War One, and all the buttons are like brass that we've recycled and remachined, and such. Like one of those kind of sites. <laughs> I think I used to walk past this place on my way home from my old job, and I used to stop and just look at all these nice men's coats because they're very nice coats. They're beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I I can see how there's coat envy. Oh, they've actually got some more affordable ones that are only about a thousand pounds now. But yeah, you get the idea. <laughs> there you go. The pure melton wool navy retro coat, eight hundred and ninety-five pounds. Jeez. There you go. They've de- they've decided to step down and speak to the masses, <laughs> who happen to have nearly a thousand pounds hanging around for a coat. Wow, it's a whole other world, isn't it? 
Does ASOS not do like a knockoff? <laughs> You'd think they would, right? Or the iconic or something. And it would just be like, oh yeah, or, or the, what's that site? It's like a pretty little thing or whatever. The ones that advertise during the Kardashians where it's just like, you know, random models walking around with stuff and they're like, you can buy a version of this that has been made in a hurry for $20. Yeah. It's like there's a department store called David Jones here which is a very kind of long stand. It's a bit like, I suppose, like a Macy's or something in the, in the States, or like a Harrods, kind of, if you're thinking that way, where it's got some very nice things and it's got a very nice food hall downstairs. Like, you can go upstairs and be like, oh, you know, they sell jeans here or they sell jackets or they sell clothes. And if you go up one floor too many, you end up in the very fancy suit section. But it looks just like the other section, so you can be casually browsing and then just look down and go, oh, oh, I could buy a car for that amount. I like it when they don't price things and then you know oh. the shop is not meant for you. Oh, I hate that so much. Oh, I hate it. Because if you have to ask, then it's like you clearly cannot afford this. It is my pet peeve, especially when st- like stores like electronic stores will do it. And I'm like, I'll be there and looking around and be like, oh, that looks interesting. And there's no prices anywhere. And I'm just like, okay. So what I then need to do is pick up from context clues, like what's written on the piece of technology and i will google it along with the store name to find the price and if i'm doing that in the middle of your store then your customer service has failed in some small way yeah because yeah i I mean it's maybe something from my particular background but i will never ever take something up to the counter to ask how much it is because the answer will always be something that i don't want to hear yeah it's that kind of thing of it almost being admitting that you're having to check Mm -hmm. no i i I know it well (laughs) (laughs) just being like i'm just gonna leave i'll just leave i won't ask exactly i'm gonna do the circuit of the store i'm gonna pretend to look at a few more things and then i'm gonna discreetly make an exit you know you know that second tier thing where you're walking back through the store and like maybe you like run your hand along something on a rack and then you're just like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go i'm gonna look at my phone i'm gonna pretend i've got a message Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm gonna walk out (laughs) i think everyone who's ever worked in a store knows the phrase you know i'm gonna think about it is that's too expensive and i'm leaving I used to work in a reasonably posh for the heist street a chocolate shop and the weirdest thing I ever got was somebody asking why we didn't sell any more expensive boxes than the 200 pound box of chocolates. <laughs> it's like, it's literally, you're going to eat it and it's 200 pounds. It's like, you sure? Do you have anything injected with platinum? Oh God, they were bad. We had like ostrich Easter eggs, which were 50 pounds. And they'd be like, oh, do you just not have anything bigger? It's like, it's a giant egg and it's filled with truffles. (laughs) I don't know what you want. Would you prefer something in jewellery and not something that's made of edible things? Like, where are you taking this? Do you actually like your friends? Or do you just want them to know that you've spent £500 on chocolates? See, whereas we have Hague's chocolate here in the city and they make very nice chocolate and it is relatively expensive but they do these massive chocolate frogs like when i say massive i mean it's like 35 centimeters long like huge and about five centimeters thick and it's very very nice chocolate and they'll do for example they'll do a mint one or they'll do dark chocolate with like orange peel in it or something like like very fancy and they're expensive they're not super expensive like the medium-sized one it's only about say 25 centimeters is about you know, $26. So you'd buy it as like a present. And I swear the store exists only for people who have come from the bars in Sydney and they are drunk and they had their credit card with them. And they will be like, I will buy some chocolate. Oh, I will get this for someone and I will get this to eat on the way home. And suddenly you've spent $75 on chocolate. Not that I've done this or anything. (laughs) But I do have a picture of Kimiko attempting to bite the head off of a giant peppermint chocolate frog. (laughs) So the Soho store of this shop used to open late on a Thursday and a Friday night because those are the big drinking nights in Soho. Oh, yes. For that very reason. So you'd be like, (laughs) if we open till 11, we'll get people in buying things when they're drunk. And that's what you want. Yeah. Then there's the opposite for the chocolate shop thing. I I did a one afternoon unpaid trial shift, which is technically illegal in Australia, but it's done all the time at the Lindt Cafe in Martin Place. Like I went there to put in an application and they're like, okay, we can try you out for the afternoon with no product yeah. knowledge, you know, no understanding of how their systems work. All they said was you have to put on a glove when you take something out of the chocolate thing and you weigh everything and it's got a number and you punch it in. So people kept asking me stuff about it and I'd be like, it's chocolate. It says it's orange and cream. Uh, I think, I think it's nice. Yeah. But there was someone who walked in to this very well turned out cafe named for a prestige chocolate brand. 
and everything is dark wood and glass counters and everyone's wearing again white gloves to handle everything and they walk up and they said why is this so expensive then oh yeah we got that all the time it's like you look around and it's the equivalent of walking into something you know the armani shop and going it's not that good isn't it and it's like well, well they, they, they don't go don't don't come in there are other stores you can like really the entire like setup of this building yeah we used to get i could get 10 dairy yeah. milks for this it's cool like, well, then go and get 10 dairy milks go for your life pal it's like i could probably do so as well but that's not why you're here i love how we've argued both for and against expensive stuff in this conversation we've seen both sides of the argument it's like the bbc it's balance <laughs> centrist on chocolate yeah this is a big debate that's happening over here at the moment because the bbc is doing this weird balance thing where whenever you have somebody coming in to explain something they have somebody come in to explain the opposite for balance so we have somebody to come in and explain climate change and then you get a climate change denier talking over this like expert why would you do that i don't get it no nobody does uh very weird thing (laughs) It's like one of those things where it's like, here, we've reported this murder, and this is why murder is bad. Next, we're going to hear from the society of murder is good. It's like, no. God. Please don't do that. Yeah, I mean, we're getting there. We're getting there in our news. Whereas I'm, I'm currently avoiding all Australian news cycles because, I don't know if you saw, uh, there's kind of a lot going on. Oh, it all went nuts last night. All week, it's been nuts. Because, he, <clears throat> yeah. kids, you see, if you haven't seen my Twitter feed or or any Australian's Twitter feed, Australian politics has this thing where every once in a while, people in a leadership party will get together and they'll knock off the prime minister. They'll have what's called a spill. And then it'll just be like, oh, by the way, with an hour's notice, this prime minister is gone and someone else is now the leader of the party, which means they are now the leader of the country. It's happened six times in six years. Each time it's happened, there have always been failed attempts on the way. Like someone will try to do it and then they won't get the votes like just narrowly, and then a bunch of them will have to become backbenchers or retire. And it's like, then there's like this panicked chunk of time where no one knows who is in charge of the country. And earlier this week, Malcolm Turnbull, of whom I am not a fan, was challenged and abdicated seat. And for 20 minutes, we were all watching the live feed of 9MSN in the office, and we didn't have a prime minister. And then he came back and he was back again. And it's like, oh, well, that's over. And then two days later, it happened again. But in doing so, it was suddenly decided, oh, by the way, his party doesn't have confidence in him. So he's stepping down anyway, even though they defeated the challenge. And now someone else is in charge. And I'm just like, I don't know how to process that, you know? Yeah. Well, to be fair, we were without a government for about a week, I think. Oh, yes, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Because Theresa May called a snap election thinking that she would, it would bolster the confidence in her. And then they didn't get a big enough majority. (laughs) Oh, I remember that, yeah. So we had about a week where we didn't know who was in charge. It was the political equivalent of, look, I'll show you the gun's not loaded. I'll point it at my foot and pull the trigger. Yeah, it was really embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a monarchist, but I was thinking, this is really a good argument to just go back to the Queen having control. (laughs) But let's pivot from politics, shall we? This is not a show about politics. Sorry, guys. I know a lot of you listen to this are probably not down for lengthy discussions of politics. We were talking about chocolate. Let's talk about something else. Oh, God. I just realized I'm about to pivot onto the most benign and most math of you topic. So what are your opinions on Cherry Bakewells versus Homemade versus the store? Oh, I was not expecting that. Exactly. It's a patented math of you change of plants. Has this come from somewhere? It has through a number of things. Because one, I think you have actually made Cherry Bakewells recently. Rosie was talking about it. I feel I like you did. I made Cherry Bakewell cupcakes That's recently. the one, yeah. yeah. And I do make Bakewells sometimes. I sometimes make lemon Bakewells. Ooh, that Which is good. quite nice because then you can put a curd underneath. Shop-bought and homemade, there's slight differences. The main difference in the shop-bought is it's got a lot of icing on the top. And then a glacé cherry. Normally with a... I've gone full bake-off. <laughs> Normally with a cherry bakewell, you just do kind of flaked almonds on the top and then bake those in so you don't have the extra layer of icing kind of over it. People might disagree, but that's kind of your general bakewell. Yeah. So it depends how processed you want it 
to be because sometimes if you've had a very bad day a shop bought cherry bakewell really hits the spot it's exactly what you want right yeah just that really thick layer of icing it's part of my um i bake a lot as a stress reliever and that has taken the form of slightly inventing recipes more recently just not like full-on inventing but taking a recipe i have and seeing how i can change it i'm not applying for bake-off but it's really the actions of somebody who thinks that they're ramping up for that. <laughs> the reason this came up is because former guest of the show, Matt Wilson, who's on a podcast called War Rocket Ajax, took a trip to Scotland and a brief visit in England as well and became obsessed with these Mr. Kipling's Cherry Bakewells. And yes. after him talking about it, a few months later, I spotted them in Australian stores. They had imported a bunch. And for a while, they were just in the UK section of that one international aisle, which I find extremely funny that there is a UK section in an Australian supermarket. And it's just under the internationals. So you can get, like, brown sauce and, like, you know, pickled onions and stuff. And then now it's in the, the regular bakery section of the supermarket. And I was just, like, there, and it was reduced to, like, $2. And I'm like, I'll try those. And I grabbed a few other things, and I was trying that. And then Kimiko got scandalized. She's like, why are you eating granny desserts? This is weird. Is this a new thing you're doing? <laughs> And I'm like, no, I was just, there was this thing and it was like lemon cream Viennese swirls. And I was like, they're just really nice little cookies. And she's like, but those are the kind of thing that my granny would have in, in her cupboard. Why are you a young person? Yeah, the Viennese swirls are quite a granny thing. <laughs> yeah, but they're nice though. Yeah, I'm with her on those. Yeah, they are. They're kind of like a lighter biscuit, a Viennese swirl. Mm-hmm. So, so what's your view on the Bakewell? I like the Bakewells. And the thing is, they came like four in a packet. And I think if you don't eat two of them on the way back to wherever you're going out of the bag, then you're not doing it correctly. Because it's like you buy it and you want it right now. Oh, they come in packs of six over here. Oh, slightly different. Yeah. But yes, yeah, I felt, especially with the Viennese swirls, it's like they, whenever you get a cookie called a melting moment, like, you know, in a cafe or whatever, yeah. what you get with a Viennese swirl, Mr. Kipling's Viennese swirl, is what you expect when you buy a cookie called a melting moment which is not always the case because they have often been sitting out for a while and the butter in them has solidified and they are now this like snapping kind of cookie as opposed to a soft cookie. Yeah. I'd never considered Mr. Kipling a thing that's being, that people come over here, but I suppose it's like when we go over to France and just buy all the biscuits over there or the Tim Tams that you sent us. Yeah. It's like really cultural. How did those go over, by the way? They were good. We were big <laughs> fans of the, the mint choc chip ones. Mm -hmm. or, yep. Not mint choc chips, but the mint ice cream. Yeah, they've come out with a couple more of the... Because Gelato Messina is a local gelato company, and they're very, very good. And they've recently franchised, and as part of that franchise, they had a Tim Tam tie-in that was only sold in Woolworths. It was like a special thing. And they had the four flavors, and then they re-released three flavors that were specifically made to be put in the fridge or freezer. And they had like a special packet that where the logo would turn blue when it was cold enough. Which is witchcraft. <laughs> exactly. And it would turn blue with little snowflakes inside. And then you were meant to eat them cold with, you know, your hot tea or whatever. The flavors were like, there was like a cherry and coconut one. There was a Turkish delight. There was an iced coffee. Like, they were meant to be this sort of like cold snack kind of flavors. Mm. They're very nice. So the mint was particularly good. And the, there was a salted caramel as well. Yeah, it's very popular. Yeah. Very good. If you are looking for more Mr. Kipling's, I recommend French Fancies. Okay, that does sound like... <laughs> some sort of euphemism for a sex toy so i'm going to ask you to explain yourself so french fancy is like a cube of cake and then there's cream on it and then the entire thing is dipped in icing and then they're like pink and yellow okay that sounds yeah. less lurid than i was initially led to believe well sometimes they're sold as fondant fancies but everyone knows they're french fancies <laughs> who are you fooling and i think the the idea is they look a bit posh mm -hmm. <laughs> to us brits I got very involved in... It's something that I never would have considered. It was when people were coming to visit the baby. All of Kimiko's friends would come over to see the baby. You know, in the first couple of months after Hiro was born, every Saturday we would have people come over to visit the baby. And the first time, I bought a whole bunch of different biscuits because I'm just like, people are going to come over. They're going to have cups of tea. I need something to do while they are having a conversation. So I will go into the kitchen. I will make a little biscuit thing. And I became very discerning as to what people would actually eat versus what looks good on a plate. And I'll tell you, the custard creams always go quick. There's a, a biscuit called an iced vovo that goes very fast. Mm. But there are some of the others that like are meant to go fast and don't, and they stick around forever, like luggage. So it's like, hang on, I will send you a picture of the iced vovo, which is another very Australian biscuit. So the other thing in the Australian biscuit and ice cream front that has been 
like blowing my mind is one called a golden gay time. Oh yes, I can explain the golden gay time. It's one of my favorite things to explain. Because donut is it donut time or something came over here, mm-hmm. which is a, an Australian donut brand, and they now sell them over here, and they have golden gay times, and I'm not sure it's translating to the UK. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. They are very, very much leaning into the explanation. First off, I'm going to drop a picture of... This is a nice Vovo biscuit, and tell me if you would eat this if you saw this on a platter. Oh, they look like fluffy biscuits. Sorry. There is an Irish brand of biscuits Mm -hmm. that my family used to send over from Ireland, and they look like that. Yeah, so it's sort of like a raspberry jam in the middle with coconut on top and then like a bit of cream along the edges and a stripe yeah it's an odd look though what's funny is that they then made an ice fovo ice cream for dessert and that actually sells better than the biscuits i can see that so the golden gay time all right i'm gonna crack my knuckles because i have explained this <laughs> so many times it's become a thing so at first glance a golden gay time is an ice cream bar it's got sort of a chocolate ice cream outside and then it's got sort of a, a lighter brown inside that's sort of a toffee with like a white center that's just vanilla and it's got little chips of like sort of biscuit crumb all around it so it looks a bit rough on the outside and they have a couple of different flavors they have a chocolate flavor they have a mint flavor but those are sort of fly-by-night things the main one is the sort of it's got a yellow and orange swirl on the outside of the the label it's the golden gay time and the (laughs) the tagline has always always been and this is going back to 1959 has been it's hard to have a gay time on your own it's it's just like it's they've they, it was that and it's like you can go and find commercials of like you know young lads and their ladies out surfing on the beach wearing terrible beach wear and just being like oh yes you know now we'll have an ice cream hooray streets ice cream it's hard to have a gay time on your own and it's like oh oh guys Ow. considering that the in-home boxes had the tagline that said four delicious chances to have a gay time <laughs> like Here's the thing. It's beloved because it's a really lovely ice cream to have. It's, it's really tasty, but it never doesn't get a laugh. So they decided to lean into it. I think it's been the last maybe seven or eight years. They've done tie-ins with the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras, the equivalent of our Pride Parade, and they've released Rainbow Unicorn Gay Times. Oh, wow. Which are blue ice cream with like purple biscuit pieces, and the inside is like blue and pink, and they're marketed as Unicorn Gay Times, and it's great. Yeah, I, I feel less weird that we have an ice cream called Nobbly Bobbly now. Yeah, see, that's that's weirder. I gotta tell you, it is in fact weirder to have Nobbly Bobbly. Nobbly Bobbly weirder? Yes. Is it just really fun to say? Say it again. Nobbly Bobblies. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, what the hell is a Nobbly Bobbly? Okay, so do you guys have fabs? Right, I'm, I'm typing this in. I think we might, but it might have a different name. Hang on. So a fab is a three-tiered ice lolly. So you've got the main ice lolly part, which is strawberry, a layer with ice cream, and then a layer of sprinkles. But it's done tiered so that it's in three parts. So you've got the sprinkles at the top, the ice cream, and then the boring ice lolly bit left. A knobbly bobbly is almost entirely sprinkles. (laughs) So it's like all the fun of the fab, and then none of the like, oh, I've eaten the best bit. Yeah, I'm looking at this now, and this does in fact look like some sort of mutant golden gay time yeah but it's uh it's great and it's got the sprinkles on the outside and then it's chocolate and then strawberry ice cream and then the center is chocolate as well i think yeah is it yeah. yeah it's like a souped up fab and we used to go and buy boxes of them and then this is a really sad teenage memory as empathetic they used to buy mm-hmm. boxes of knobbly bobblies and then play monopoly <laughs> that was part of our summer <laughs> so wholesome no, not so wholesome, because we had to ban Monopoly, because my brother gets very aggressive. Oh, so, no. So we're not allowed to play it anymore. He threw over the board. Oh, don't do that, brother of Lucy. Which is classic Monopoly memory. I was going to say, um, I've learned something recently, well, in the last couple of years, that led me to attempt Monopoly as an adult, because I hated Monopoly when I was a kid, because it would be all Sunday afternoon, and you'd never finish a game. We, I'd never finished a game of Monopoly in my life. You always quit because it was dinner or you got bored or whatever. Or in some yeah. cases because my sister would just get everything and then it was just like, I don't want to play anymore. But what I learned is that, and this is now a, a well-known fact, it's been repeated a lot. The reason those games took forever is because all of the house rules that we all used to play with, which is that, you know, all the money goes into free parking and you land on free parking and get all the money in the middle, right? Yeah. That's what everyone does, except that apparently breaks the balance of the game. 
it allows players who are losing to occasionally win a lottery and stay in the game for longer. Okay, so you're supposed to go bankrupt. Exactly. It's meant to be that if you're playing badly, you can't sustain more than a couple of goes around the board without some windfall. And if that windfall is too big, it keeps you playing badly, but you're still in a lower position, so you still lose. It just takes longer. It randomizes part of the game. And so I think it was like one public holiday. Kimiko and I were just in the house, and we were just like, let's just do this, because I have a really nice old Monopoly set, which is in like a nice wooden box, and it's got the beautiful old tokens and stuff. We opened a bottle of wine and played Monopoly. And that's when I learned that, hey, you know, Kimiko works in like media sales, and she's a really killer negotiator. And she played my ass like a fiddle. <laughs> like anytime she would offer me a deal, it seemed like a really good deal and I would take it and it turned out to not be a good deal. This is like a friend of mine. So another thing we played a lot of as teenagers was Cluedo, but a friend of mine now has a PhD in maths and she can win Cluedo in four goes. Like Ugh. every time. Because she can just suss it out. Playing the probabilities. Yeah, so we can't play Cluedo anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like when we played Monopoly, it like we ended games in like 35 minutes because the minute you remove that free parking and there are a few rules that you do, like if you land on something, you have to buy it. And if you don't buy it, it's then an auction. Yes. And the auction starts the minute you say, no, I'm not buying it. And if there's only two of you, it's then like a frantic bidding war and you end up either paying more for something than you would have buying it at face value just to keep it or you end up losing it for a steal. Oh. It's so cutthroat, you know, just like real capitalism. Yeah, I'm not introducing these rules to my brother. He was bad enough with the other ones. Mm. Oh, and then I saw the worst thing. I saw this the other day in the shops. There is now an official cheater's monopoly. Oh, yeah, he's not having that either. Nope. And I read the back because I'm just like, what, what, what is this? Why are you encouraging cheating? And what it said on the back is you're encouraged to do things like steal money from the bank. Or if you like pass your hand over someone's properties and they're not looking, you can nick one of their properties and it's yours. But if they catch you, there are severe penalties. So it's basically, you thought it was capitalism the game before, now it's really capitalism. Maybe I'll buy it for him on a day that I'm not there, because he'll love it, but I'm not playing it with him. <laughs> it, it's the equivalent of having a friend who has a child, and you buy the toy that makes the really annoying sound, and then you leave. Yeah, my grandma did that with my littlest cousin. She got in this big Tonka truck that like made noises and sang. Oh, no. And then left. And she was like, well, he loved it. <laughs> oh, my God. We had a hand-me-down toy, which was, you know, those little cars that babies push around that they can sit on, and they've got buttons and yes. stuff on the front. So we got a very battered one of those from a friend of Kimiko's. And it did make noises. Like, you can turn it on, and it would play, like, Camptown Races when you'd press the horn or just, like, make little beeps or boops if you did stuff. The thing is, when we moved... Initially, when we were setting up, because this house is much smaller than our previous house, it was like Tetris trying to find out, okay, where can we put the boxes while we unpack a box and then can put this. So it was like moving things around to fit other things in. And at one point, that toy was, we have a little light well halfway down the house. We put it outside and then forgot about it. And then it rained for two weeks straight. And then out of nowhere, we'd be asleep at two in the morning and Camptown Races would start playing. Oh my God. (laughs) And we would just wake up enough to go like, is that is that one of Hero's toys or is that... I, and then we'd fall asleep again. And it did that for like two weeks where every second day or so it would wake us up playing Countdown Race until finally I went downstairs, opened the door to the light well, found this now very soggy ride-on car toy that we had been given. And at that point it was playing it non-stop and wouldn't turn off. Ghost toy. <laughs> and the battery compartment was held shut with a plastic screw that clearly someone had screwed in so tightly that it had stripped all the thread off the top of the screw. So I eventually had to get a knife and lever off this plastic thing and rip the batteries out and it died with an awful sound. Oh my god. And it was just like... Nim, nim, and it was just like... Uh, silence. And this was in the rain that this happened. So I defeated this mighty beast with the butter knife of progress. Yeah, that's... That's terrifying, though, ghost toy. (laughs) (laughs) A ghost toy in the rain that I had to stab to death. It's it's the new M. Night Shyamalan film. On that horrifying but still extremely parental note, Lucy, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? So I am at L.A. Harrison Music on Twitter and Instagram, and I am also, to be honest, my Twitter is mainly... It's mainly The Rock... 
and just my appreciation yep. for The Rock. There's sometimes some work stuff in there, so you sometimes get some interesting insights into contemporary music that is mainly about The Rock. And then my website is laharrisonmusic.co.uk and if you want to hire me for music or sound, I'm quite good <laughs> just to put that out into the universe. <laughs> so if you've got any projects coming up, I'm a good person to keep in mind if you want weird interactive stuff. There you go. So yes, people, go give Lucy money to make music. Yes. Oh, and I have a tiny letter, as I think most people do, which is tinyletter.com forward slash LA Harrison Music. As I have strong branding. That is life lessons from pop culture is what I've got on there. I take a film or a TV show and then I pull apart for some questionable life lessons. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, the most recent one had a playlist. There's some David Bowie on there. There's some Dream Warriors, Blondie, bit of Travis. Yes. Some Peggy Lee, Mika Snow. Yeah, it's all pretty good. And of course, there's Robbie Williams because Lucy loves Robbie Williams. You love Robbie Williams and Travis. Travis they were my first indie band, and they're the ones that stuck. And <laughs> I had an option to meet one of Travis recently, and I turned it down. <laughs> because it was too much. I'm sorry, I failed to believe that you would have been cool in that situation. Yeah, like, it was like, well, you can just join us for dinner. And I went, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not happening. (laughs) Yeah, because I'm a lecturer in a place with a lot of men who've been in the industry since the 90s and know everyone who I grew up loving. And uh, it's very difficult to be cool. It's like, oh, yeah. Nothing, just just guy from Elbow dropping by, you know, no big deal, and you just like, just, just stop that. Somebody's reference for their job was Johnny Marr. <laughs> it's that kind of level. And we've got Queen stuff everywhere, and one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers comes in and does, like, drum workshops. It's weird. <laughs> you live a strange and charmed life. Yeah, it's very odd. I just kind of walk around going, well, this is this is weird. I'm just going to hang back and not meet anybody who I used to love. Or you could just be like the dedicated ice cream ambassador and you could have Chad Smith and the Red Hot Chili Peppers eating a Nobbly Bubbly. Yes, I think he would love that. <laughs> All right, Lizzie, and on that wonderful note, I think we can wrap things up. Thank you so much for coming back. No, no, really enjoyed it. Thank you. very much to Lucy Harrison for her time. Now, last time Lucy was on the show, she requested an entry-level cocktail, so I made a gimlet and then made a flowchart on all the ways you could modify a gimlet to make it something different. I think at this point, Lucy's ready for something a little more difficult. So I took some of the flavors that were mentioned in the episode, along with a few smidges of Bake Off, and after a wild evening of experimentation, I've come up actually with two cocktails. However, after some debate, it was decided that the first cocktail I found was a little too impractical to be the signature drink for the show. So that will be a bonus thing on Patreon. See, I guess other people that aren't me don't just keep Dolce de Leche in their cupboards. Which is fine. It's a valid life choice. And so I present the Cherry Velvet Number 2. In an old-fashioned glass, over a large ice cube, pour 1.5 ounces of cognac, a third of an ounce of Amaro Montenegro, a third of an ounce of sweet vermouth, and half an ounce of Pedro Jimenez Sherry. Stir to combine and garnish with a maraschino cherry. A convivial drink for when you're having a great time all on your own. Enjoy! Right, 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 right. Like a 
Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Wednesday evening, with a bonus episode in between, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or, you can pledge as much as you want. I recently bought a student desk that allows me to record on a flat surface that isn't a pile of boxes. I have yet to put it together, though. I'm looking at the box right now. Patrons get access to bonus cocktail recipes like the one I hinted to earlier, cursive tweets, physical mail, and I just really, really appreciate it a whole bunch. Some tiers of support come with thanks on the show, so this week, it's Cam. And if you're the same Cam from Twitter, I think you came out of the Smash Fiction group, and you've been just a really great supporter of me and of the show as a whole. So thank you, Cam. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also rate us anywhere else you want, like Player FM, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or Spotify. We're, we're on Spotify now. It's great. And anywhere you rate, if you write a review, send me a link and I'll read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one. And as of right now, that's a flat 19 hours of music, including this song. It's Ice Cream by Battles. That manages to be one of the catchiest songs I've ever heard, while also not having any lyrics I can say out loud or understand. I update the playlist every week as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. I got a tweet earlier from Rich Howard, guest on the last episode, about how he's been really enjoying it, which is great. And just before we wrap up, I've got something I wanted to say. You might have noticed that there's a bit of a pattern to the guests I pick on the math of you. And it's something that I've never actually discussed on air before. But I've always held it as a hard and fast rule. The math of you is for everyone. But specifically, I'd always told myself I was never going to have two cisgender, heterosexual, white men on in a row. That was my rule. And honestly, for 87 episodes, I managed to keep that streak alive. Until last episode. That said, I do not begrudge any of my guests, let alone the last two, who were really great guests and I really enjoyed both those episodes. But thinking about it made me want to say this as a declaration, rather than just having it in my head that I was going to try. So I say out loud now what I've always had in my head. I am always going to give the microphone first to people other than cisgender, heterosexual, white men. I'm still going to book the guests that I want to have. That's never going to change. But maybe just keep it in mind if I tell you that your episode may not be for a little while or isn't right for right now. But until next week, join me, won't you? I can't remember if I sent you the video or not. Did I where Hero met the little Pomeranian yesterday? Oh, I saw it on Instagram. I feel like a, a the little picture. Stalker. Yeah, and the, yeah, yeah. Because I was at work, and Kimiko just sends me this video, and I open it. And it's just him shrieking and staring at this little dog, and I'm like, Hero, we have a little dog at home. And he's like, No, yeah, but yours isn't fluffy. It's a tiny fluffy dog. Oh my god. <laughs> Also, I need to point out that my kid was power clashing three different prints yesterday. Yeah, but he's a style icon, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he had velvety leopard print pants. And he had, like, a shirt that had, like, little fake sailor tattoos all over it. And then he had a printed puffy vest with dinosaurs on it. Oh, my God. There's a lot happening. Yeah, I wish I had his style. When you get older, the stylish wardrobe is a lot more expensive. <laughs> That's true. It's, like, more of a thing where it's, like... Oh, I need to uh, seek out these particular things and then be tactical about it. Like, nah, he's like, I have a dinosaur vest, I have leopard pants, I have tattoo shirt, I look good. Yeah, I feel like I should counter with a puppy. My auntie just got a puppy. Ooh. 
and he's called Ronnie Barker. <laughs> of course he is. From what I've learned about your family and his love of British comedy, that makes complete sense. Yeah, we also like the idea that the dog has his own surname. <laughs> so then when you go to the vet, he's called by his name. It's always strange when, oh, Ronnie Barker's a good dog. That is some power clash, though. Isn't it? <laughs> I am proud to say his mother dressed him in it. It was not me. Ronnie Barker is a good dog. I, the picture came through almost immediately. He came home for the first time yesterday, so that's him being a little bit shocked about where he is. Well, I was going to say, I'm looking at him, and it's like he does look like a cartoon of a dog. He's got very cute paws as well, like he's got cartoon paws. I was going to say, he looks like if you opened a, a foreign language textbook and it had vocabulary words and it had dog, it would have a drawing of Roddy Barker. He's really great. He keeps uh, headbutting the oven as well because <laughs> it's got a reflection on it and he can't understand that that's not another puppy. He's like, no, I get you. I get you. Doof. Yeah, every time. The thing about surnames at the vet is like if you don't have a dog with a surname, they always put your surname on the pet and it always leads to some interesting prescription labels. It's stuff like <laughs> like anytime I'll bring it, it'll be like I'll call up and have to say, yes, it's for Bolin Brown. Whereas Olive Brown just sounds like, you know, we hadn't thought about the name of our child before we decided that it was going to be two colors. Yeah. Although I was talking to someone through work and they were talking about their two children, their two babies, twin boys, who they named Oscar and Felix. And I went, oh, like the odd couple. And there was a moment of silence and she went, no, we didn't actually realize that until about a week after we brought the babies home. <laughs> oh, no. My dad was godfather for somebody and he went to the christening and asked for the full name so that he knew. And it was Nicholas Edward Robert Douglas. And he went, oh, some nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Like, nobody thought this through, did they? No, nobody got it before the christening. I can also point out that uh, my cousin, my mum's family is all sisters, so none of my cousins share a surname, except for one particular branch where my aunt Di married a guy named Stephen Brown, and so therefore we're the only two parts of the family that have both have the same surname, including my cousin, James Brown. <laughs> and I need to point out, this section of my family is maybe the whitest of the white family that we are. And did not know that there was a, an extremely popular singer with a tenure of 30 plus years when they, in 1986, chose to name their son, their incredibly white son, James Brown. James Brown. Now I think I have a James Brown student as well. I think it's a really common mistake. I looked on the register and went, well, that's unfortunate. It's up there with all the Tom Joneses out there. Yeah. And I mean, at least Tom Jones has like some, some literary side of it too. Mm. But it's like... Yeah, it's like just you're going to enjoy wearing big belt buckles and asking cats how they're doing today. I mean, it could go the other way and then you get, you know, the Delilah route. So <laughs> talking to cats, it's like the least of the problem. Oh, God, what if your name was, in fact, Tom Jones and you did, in fact, meet someone and fall in love with someone named Delilah? <laughs> it's just like you'd get to the altar and the celebrant would just be like, really? <laughs> yeah, we're not doing this. We know how this goes. My, my, Delilah. <laughs> and, uh, you, you just, now I just, I just want to keep going. It just spoken word the whole thing and just be like, someone, like Delilah would be like, oh, I picked up some dinner on the way. And you'd go, why? Why, why, Delilah? <laughs> Can't you see? <laughs> it's not meant for me. <laughs> this is so dumb. This isn't funny to anyone but me. <laughs> no, I'm liking it. <laughs> it's so dumb. Oh, it's early in the morning. Because <sighs> nothing makes good, like podcast gold than laughing at your own jokes. <laughs> your own really stupid jokes. <sighs> That's the McElroy route, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, I suppose we should get started, shouldn't we? Yeah, probably. Okay. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm still, still laughing. <laughs> I forget to laugh. <laughs> Oh, I was actually going to say that the thing I was going with with the pet names at the vet thing is because my old cat, who was still kicking despite her being the equivalent of like a hundred human years, a cat that my ex-wife and I had who now lives with my ex-wife's mother, was named Megrat after the Terry Pratchett character. And has had various trips to the vet where I've had to try and explain the name. And that's like, <laughs> this has led to that cat being listed under several misspellings of that name and including under, in one instance as Margaret. <laughs> Which I think oh, speaks great. truth to the character. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a formal name for a cat as well. Yes. Margaret. What have you done? Margaret. 